Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. What's it like for you watching games of your son coaching? Agonizing. It's a family affair on Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast. You know, I didn't know there was actual work here. (laughs) Recent guests include Rich Eisen, John Harbaugh, Judge Judy, and John Madden. I thought one of the greatest jobs in coaching in the NFL was Jim's first year with the 49ers. Exclusively on Podcast One Sportsnet. Get episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Great time to be a Wolverine. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I, before the playoffs, had talked with Kevin Pelton of ESPN about an idea for talking about the early part of the playoffs that he liked and ended up, I don't know if he had it before I did or we were talking about at the same time, doing something similar with a piece, so it really tied together. But what we wanted to do was talk about all eight series at the two-game mark. It's one of the rare points where everybody's at the same place in terms of number of games played. So this was recorded on Thursday afternoon. It was before, obviously, the events of Thursday night's Game 3s and 3 series. But I think the conversation holds up really well. Really fun dive into a lot of the different dynamics that are going on in these series. And it is brought to you by Simple Contacts. They have this amazing five-minute vision test that you can do. And you can also go to simplecontacts.com slash RealGM or use the RealGM promo code for $30 off your contact order, which is fantastic. And then our friends at TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. The conversation with Mr. Pelton goes a little bit over an hour. I think you'll really enjoy it. I love talking with him. And here it is. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks as always for having me. I enjoy the idea, and you and I talked about this, I think even before the playoffs started, about doing something after all the game twos, because I do feel like we have a significant amount more information now. It's not necessarily clarity on a lot of these series, but I do think we have more information than after a really fun weekend of game ones. Yeah, and it's also a nice dividing line, because I think after this point, you're going to see some series that maybe even get to game three, game four before game three, depending on the schedule, but certainly those happen on the same day next weekend. But here it is all all eight series are at exactly the same point at the same time. And I had been wondering how to kind of frame this discussion earlier. And then this morning when I woke up, I saw your piece, which ranked the series in terms of competitiveness, which I thought was was an interesting way to organize this. And then I realized, oh, that's the perfect way for us to talk about these series, because the fact of the matter is, and sorry to those fans of teams that are later in this, but we'll talk more about the more competitive series, I would assume. It makes sense to do. That was definitely the way it ended up in the piece. And yeah, we were searching for a frame to to write this piece at, you know, obviously the same time between game two and game three. And and I thought that made the most sense uh, and, and then did it kind of subjectively instead of going by any of the projections that are out there. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And what it led to was because I thought about it as soon as because I saw your tweet and I'm like, okay, where where would I go with this? And I thought about it for a couple minutes before I started reading the piece. And I was pleased that we went with the same number one. And that's Cavs Pacers, which I absolutely would not have expected before this started, but think is the right call given what we've seen so far. 
Yeah, I think there was two options here. The other one being the the Jazz and Thunder, who we'll get to in a second here. But yeah, before the series, it's interesting. I uh, what I did be- beforehand is a preview of all eight series was ranked them in terms of the projected likelihood of an upset based on the model that I used to project playoff series that takes into account the team's point differential during the regular season and then the head-to-head record of the two teams during the regular season. And largely because of the fact that the Pacers uh, won three out of four head-to-head matchups. Uh, and were the only lower-seeded team to do so, this was ranked as by far the most likely series to produce an upset and is close to a 50, and close to a 50-50 matchup overall. And, and I kind of dismissed that a little going in because, you know, first off, all of those matchups occurred before the trade deadline. I think Isaiah Thomas played in several of them. And then there's also the knowledge that we have that, you know, there's a, there's a playoff gear for LeBron James and more so than any other teams. His teams have tended to play better in the playoffs. But so far, we, we saw LeBron play off LeBron last night in game two, and the Cavs needed it just to eke out a victory at home. Yeah, and in some ways for me, it was easier to write off for the, like, you know, the idea of being concerned about the Cavs. It was easier to write off game one, which they lost going away, than it was to write off game two, which they won, because so many things went right for Cleveland early. LeBron just going off, and it wasn't just LeBron getting to the basket every single time. If that was the case, you know, you, you could deal with that. And I think he will have moments like that in the series, though Bogdanovich has defended him well. This was LeBron James hitting a bunch of jump shots. He was two of five from three, but I think he was seven of nine from mid-range and you can't bet on that every single game and so then Victor Oladipo picked up the, the the early two fouls the second of which I quibbled with and then he picked up a third foul in this in the second quarter and missed a bunch of time there and it's not so much oh well the, you know in plus minus the the Pacers were better than the Cavs when Victor Oladipo played it's not the statistical part of it it's when you watch it the fundamental question in this series for me was can the Pacers outscore the Cavs and when Victor Oladipo is on the floor the answer to that question is yes a lot more than I thought it would be yeah and I mean we knew that the Cavaliers defense was going to struggle because it's the Cavaliers defense and they just had no solution for Oladipo uh, he's become the master at you know when he gets in gets a switch in pick and roll and then goes into an isolation situation you know a lot of guys will back up a little bit to create some more space but he's going way back and kind of creating a runway for him if you don't follow him out there I mean if you do follow him out there you're in trouble but if you don't follow him out there he's going to be at full speed by the time you're trying to make your first step and that is incredibly difficult to deal with well yeah and there was that play I think it was Jeff Green that he that Oladipo just completely crossed him over and and got all the way to the basket but then DeMontis Sabonis missed the three-pointer but Cleveland in their current iteration and this is actually part of the argument even though he's imperfect that I would use to say maybe Tristan Thompson should get a shot not not like oh he should start or play heavy rotation minutes yet he would have to earn it but Cleveland just does not have a ton of deterrence uh, other than LeBron when he's active. And LeBron is, you know, he can play that center field role a fair amount, but he, A, he hasn't been as dominant on it at this season as he was, you know, especially 2016, but they just don't have that many other capable help defenders. They have some guys who can maybe get in the way. And the Pacers, part of how they were such an effective shooting team this year is not the idea of, okay, they have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson or something like that. And those guys are going to take a majority of the threes and those 
those guys are two of the best shooters ever. They've done it by having a lot of competence out there. And that can be harder for a defense because you, you aren't concentrating that shooting capability. You're dispersing it. Yeah. And any one breakdown, all right, if we make sure to help to this guy, we're going to be okay. It's you got to help to everyone. And the Cavs have not been very good at doing that. Uh, I think to me, one of the most interesting strategic matchups in this series is, you know, where Miles Turner has played defensively. Game, you don't want him matched up ideally with Kevin Love because that's a really tough ask for him. He doesn't defend particularly well on, out on the perimeter. His instinct is to be like many big men is to stay around the basket and be able to protect the rim there. In game one, he was able to do that quite readily because of the fact that he was hiding on Jeff Green. Game two, Ty Lue changes his starting lineup, gets more shooting in there with Kyle Korver and J.R. Smith, takes that option away. So he starts out on Love, but then in the second half, fascinatingly, is defending George Hill. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. And it made some sense, especially because George Hill was more more passive in this game. I thought that was a, a pretty significant disappointment for me. I've been a big believer in George Hill basically forever. But it was the right move tactically. I mean, of of imperfect options, that is the best one for Miles Turner. And also you saw the relief, let's put it, in the Pacers defense when Larry Nance was on the floor. That does not mean Larry Nance is a bad player. It just means that he doesn't provide that spacing that Cleveland's offense can really benefit from. Yeah, the geometry makes more sense for Indiana defensively because you know that Nance is going to be either in the pick and roll or around the basket, and those are places that Miles Turner is used to be. So one of the other elements that changed in this series in that second half, I mean, you brought up the Miles Turner element, and I think that we'll probably see that in some iteration, largely because it worked, and because Jeff Green is going to probably be marginalized even like he was. He only played 13 minutes a game, too. Yeah, he, he basically played exclusively, it looked like, as LeBron's backup at power forward, which makes right. sense. It does. And we'll have to see, Brian Windhorst, I believe, was the first to report that Kevin Love has a partially torn ligament in his left thumb. And something that I have become more aware or cognizant of since the last couple of years is the idea of the, the nuance that is a player playing but not being 100% and the impact of that. And that's what I'm concerned about for Cleveland. Thumbs are an incredibly important part of, of basketball. I mean, even though it's on his offhand, Love does a lot, you know, as a shooter, as a rebounder, and any limitation there, if it's being heavily wrapped or if it's just pure discomfort, is a big problem for them, not only because Love is a, a gifted offensive player and he's a capable defensive rebounder, which can be very important for them as well, but because there is not another player on this Cleveland Cavaliers roster at the moment that can really replicate what he does, either as a big or a small. I guess the the closest you could come is just using one of their perimeter players like Randy Hoodmore, but they don't have enough depth outside of that to really make that work for full games if Love can be less if he's less effective. Yeah, I spent some time contemplating what they would do lineup wise if he was unable to go entirely before we got the report that you know he would likely play in game three and yeah i think that was the conclusion is that they would just probably end up going small a lot more because i i you know as much as you might like the idea of tristan thompson i i just don't think he's going to play a big role in this series so yeah i mean it'll be interesting to see larry nance provides them a different element when he's in there but it is again makes things much easier for indiana defensively Something that's worth watching in this series is just 
I think I think overall, Indiana has outplayed Cleveland in the two games of the series. Both games were in Cleveland, and now they go home. And Indiana, it's not like they're some neophyte playoff team. These guys have been in it before, though it is con- sometimes confusing because the organization has been in a lot more recently than these specific players because of the you know the Paul George teams, which are largely disbanded at this point. So will they get a boost from their home crowd? Or my current theory on this is I don't think this series swings as much with that as other things do, though Cleveland has been inconsistent and lost some surprising road games this year. LeBron and his teams historically have been pretty impervious to going on the road, you know, in in almost any situations. I mean, you think back to the conference finals that they've started without home court advantage and and just looked completely comfortable there. So, yeah, I don't think that specifically is going to be an issue. It's just just going to more be the continued matchups of can the Cavaliers get enough defense to, to win this series? Do you think there's anything that they're particularly doing wrong on Victor Oladipo, or is he just a terrible matchup for them? Yeah, I don't know. I have a have a good idea for an alternative solution. Yeah, I don't either. And in certain ways, it's actually more challenging for Cleveland to face a two guard that is really talented offensively than a three, which is the exact opposite for almost every other team in the NBA, just because you can't really throw. LeBron tried to guard him that one possession and Oladipo relished driving by him and getting that layup past him. So he, I certainly, I, I still think LeBron is capable of handling that for, for stretches of time, but if he's going to be playing 40 minutes a game, he's basically now the primary ball handler on almost every possession that he's on the floor, really running the show, creating a lot, not only for others, but for himself, that it's too much to ask for him to do that game in, game out, maybe for crunch time minutes like that. And I think the the Pacers can counter it because there isn't anybody else that's really any better. Right. I mean, I guess I did maybe expect more trapping from Cleveland in this series since that's usually been a tie loose staple in the past. Yeah, I think we'll see more of that too. And they need to be really disciplined about it. This is something that came up. Maybe we'll talk about it in the Portland New Orleans section, but you have to get a trap in the right place where you're actually narrowing the options because if if everybody knows you're trapping early, then you can do a couple of different things. You can short it. You can just make it uh, make an early pass. You can kind of fake a pick and roll. And I don't think Cleveland's communication and their defensive instincts are sophisticated enough at this point to handle that sort of nuance. That said, I'm not sure the Pacers are really situated to create that more on the fly because we just haven't seen them deal with it that much this year. Yeah, I mean, historically, their answer to Oladipo getting trapped has been, Oladipo, dribble your way out of this. Right. Kevin and I have seven more series to talk about, but I want to take a a quick moment to tell you about Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is a company that really impressed me because what they've done is they have taken something that has been a really arduous process for a long time, even with many of the developments that we've had in terms of technology, and made it simpler, made it more convenient and more accessible. And really what you can do, the the most amazing distillation of it is that if you are looking to renew your contact prescription, you can do a five-minute vision test from either your computer, which is the way I tried it out, or your phone, which is simply incredible to me. And that vision test gets reviewed by a licensed doctor. You can get a renewed one-year prescription, and you can reorder your contacts. And if you have an unexpired prescription, you can just upload a photo or your doctor's information, and you can order your lenses that way. 
So it's a truly incredible process. The vision test, I've done it. It's self-guided. It takes less than five minutes. And it is really reviewed. I actually had, they caught a problem, not with my eyes, but a problem with the way I administered my vision test. And so they had me correct it. They wanted to make sure that everything was right. And I was blown away by how sophisticated the process was. It's designed by doctors and licensed ophthalmologists review every test to make sure that your eyes look healthy and that your vision has not changed. Simple Contacts also, of course, offers all the brands of lenses that you're familiar with, and they have great customer service. You can get text updates, everything like that. And beyond the convenience of being able to do this from your phone or your computer, the vision test is only $20, and it can be so much more expensive if you have to go into a doctor and also time-consuming, and so and time is money for a lot of people as well. So you have all of these things running together. So you can check it out. I definitely recommend that you do. You can go either you can use the a URL or a promo code. I love it when they do both because then it's you can do it either way. The website is simplecontacts.com slash realgm. Real GM Radio, you're very familiar with that on the show. And if you do that, you get $30 off your contacts. Or if you have trouble remembering the website address, you can just enter the promo code REALGM at checkout and you get the same $30 discount. It's pretty awesome that you can do it that way. Definitely check it out. Vision Test is amazing. I was really impressed by the technology. And again, that's simplecontacts.com slash REALGM or the REALGM promo code, R-E-A-L-G-M. You can check it out. This is not a replacement for your periodic eye, eye health exam, but it is a truly remarkable process. Simple context, vision care, simplified. So we can move on to the second series in terms of competitiveness for you. And you, you mentioned this at the beginning, that it was really a, a two-series race. And the other one is Oklahoma City against Utah. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. That game, like Cleveland's, was Wednesday night. And... I think this ties in with the other part of why this series is so interesting is because it's harder in this series to say than in the other one, but also Oklahoma City doesn't have LeBron James, that uh, I you could make an argument that Utah has either outplayed or been close to it with Oklahoma City in these first two games, though I would say Oklahoma City played pretty dang well in the first game. Yeah, I mean, Utah, it, it's an interesting position because as well as they played in game two, there also was a sense when this was kind of tied midway through the fourth quarter, like... Oh boy, if they don't get this one, you know, you go home down 02, you're you're in a pretty big hole. As much as people like to say that that cliche that oh, the series doesn't win until a team wins on the road. Like no, the fact is and I think John Hollinger back in the day did a really excellent job of making this very clear. If you're the lower seeded team and you go into game 5 tied 2-2, you're in trouble because of the fact that now you have to either win game five or game seven to win the series on the road. You only have two chances to get that road win you're going to need. And game seven has been so difficult for road teams to win historically that now game five is close to a must win for you. So really want to be in position to have a chance to take one of the first two on the road. And, I, and that's where I think it was important that Utah pulled out that win Wednesday night. And they pulled out that win through defense. And Oklahoma City, sure, they missed a bunch of shots in that late game. I think they scored 13 points in the, or something like 18 points in the final 13 minutes of that game. Some of that was Oklahoma City missing shots they normally make. Melo had a couple wide open threes. Westbrook had a pull up two. But overall, I thought not only just in that stretch, but before that, especially when they were able to prevent the Thunder from getting into transition, I thought Utah did a much better job in game two of challenging the shots that Oklahoma City wanted to take. 
And Paul George was key in that. They were getting into his body more, making him dribble more. And I don't think he's going to shoot four of 12 from three every game. But I do think Utah's defense played a major part in that. I mean, that may be a more sustainable percentage for him going forward than 88 of 11 he shot in game one. True. Yeah. And I thought, you know, they look, we know this is an excellent defensive team. So it was surprising, I think, that Oklahoma City was able to have so so much success offensively in game one and a little disconcerting. But that also was driven largely by that three-point shooting by Paul George. And when that came back to earth, we saw more of what we've come to know and love about the Utah defense. And uh, what I thought was most interesting from a strategic standpoint in, in game two was their ability to keep Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert both on the floor late in this game. Uh, early on, you had Jeremy Grant, you know, kind of playing alongside Mello and Stephen Adams in the front court, and so it was pretty easy to use Grant as a hiding place for Derek Favors. Then later they went back to Corey Brewer in that spot and, and didn't have Adams in at the end after he fouled out. So it was a little more nominally difficult, but it's still Oklahoma City just doesn't have enough shooting in those spots to really make Utah pay for playing traditional bigs. And in the first half of, of this game, Derek Favors was able to kind of return the favor and take advantage on the offensive glass. I think he had six offensive rebounds in the first half and eight total. And that's something Mello, you know, he has strengths as a player. And I don't think that posting Mello up is a good idea. But if you have both Favors and Gobert or just situationally whoever's around crashing the offensive glass, as long as it's not Jay Crowder who did that way too much, you could you don't sacrifice or, as much. Or, or Ricky Rubio who did it in the fourth quarter. And oh, forced, uh, God, that's right. Foul. Yeah. <laughs> and so there is an advantage to create against Oklahoma City who has – talented players but you know generally speaking if you were to really draw the lines they are playing smaller a portion of the time i mean they don't really have a backup center something that was very noticeable in this game and steven yep. adams you know i thought he played well when he was out there but you could see the i've never i am not completely sure whether it's a wrist a hand issue or both but you could see him being affected by it i still think he played well i thought that if he had stayed in in the fourth quarter if he hadn't fouled out that this game could have gone very differently but outside of adams who is a i, I would say is a better offensive rebounder than defensively better because he focus also he focuses more on box outs but they just don't have that many other guys you know patterson can try a little bit jeremy grant has a, is a good vertical athlete but he doesn't really have that wide base and so sending two capable guys at the rim is probably going to produce more offensive opportunities than you would expect otherwise yeah, opportunity against that second unit. We've known right. that that was going to be a weakness going back to when they traded Anis Cantor, you know, in the mellow trade before training camp. And they've done a pretty good job of mitigating mitigating it most of the year. Jeremy Grant has played excellent for them. And, you know, they were good overall when he was on the court in this game. But uh, I, I, to me, you know, this a lot of this series is going to continue to hinge. This was something I posted about, I think, in the at the end of the third quarter. What happens in the minutes where Russell, Russell Westbrook is on the bench? Because last year in the playoffs, the Thunder just got destroyed when Westbrook was on the bench. That's the reason they lost the series. He had a positive – the team had a positive plus-minus with him on the court. And I think three out of the five games in a five-game series lost to the Rockets – uh, that was how bad they were when Westbrook rested. And, you know, nominally, you pick up Paul George, you pick up Carmelo Anthony. A big part of what you're trying to do is make sure that you have scoring for those situations that Mel, uh, that Westbrook is not on the court. And it didn't really translate during the regular season. It actually seemed like they kind of played better when they just threw five reserves out there and let Raymond Felton run the show. Game one, they were positive in the minutes Westbrook sat. That was a big factor in them winning. Game two, first half, 
or the third quarter, they started out pretty well. They extended their lead with Westbrook on the bench when he first went there. But then the Jazz went on a run. Donovan Mitchell, I think, had like the first five points of the fourth quarter. And they ended up, I think, a minus two in the minutes Westbrook missed. So if the Jazz can continue to win those minutes and play relatively even when the starters are on the floor, then they're in pretty good shape, I think. And I've been pleasantly surprised with Dante Exum's play in... Well, I was I was pleasantly surprised with his play after he returned from injury as well, but I thought Felton would give him some problems because Felton, you know, is, knows what he can do, solid, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, Felton's going to play his game just like they did on those, you know, true second units with Oklahoma City this year. And I think Exum has sped him up a little bit. He's created a few turnovers. He's gotten in there. And... I think he gives them, it's not the reason why they've been winning those minutes, but I think he gives them another element, which can certainly be useful. It's just nice to see this is the Dante Exum that we all kind of expected when, you know, you you had him number one in your draft board, right? I did. So did I. So (laughs) this is what we were thinking about Dante Exum, and it's nice to finally see it on the court. Yeah, and I, I'm very happy. This is a, a, a thing that you deal with in the playoffs as an evolving process for talented teams of, okay, who plays and who plays how much? And I think Utah has gotten pretty close now to what their rotation should be. Jarebko, I thought he did a generally did a, a nice job in this game, so his minutes can vacillate a little bit, but you know, they're going to need to rely on a lot of Donovan Mitchell. Maybe Derek Favors is going to play 37 minutes in every game, but the only bench players they had out there, Jay Crowder, certainly capable, even though I didn't love his play in this game. Royce O'Neal, I thought he did a nice job on Paul George overall, you know, just make some work. It's not necessarily like, oh, he's going to beat Paul George. That's not the goal. The aforementioned Dante Exum and Jarebko. Yep, that's about right. And, and the starters played a lot more than the backups, and I thought the backups did pretty well. The other thing we should probably talk about here, and I'm sure this is something that the uh, the Oklahoma City coaching staff is talking about as they think about how this series goes forward, is Ricky Rubio going five of eight from three, which is not something the Jazz can necessarily count on. But the old idea was, boy, you know, Rubio has been this great regular season player, but when you get him into the playoffs, his lack of shooting is just going to kill you because teams are going to willingly help off of him in that setting and lo and behold he's become enough of a catch and shoot three-point option that now you can't quite do that to him and the catch and shoot part of that is a problem for Oklahoma City because Russell Westbrook is largely guarding him and playing against Russell Westbrook will create catch and shoot opportunities because he just loses guys talented you know when he's engaged but Westbrook just is very spacey defensively he's been that way almost his entire NBA career and so Rubio's reluctance to shoot actually did burn Utah a couple times this game. You think, oh my God, he shot five of eight from three. How did that happen? And there were a few plays where like he got the ball in the corner and Rubio's going, ah, eh, no, I'll try to do something else with it. But those straight rhythm threes, you know, gets the ball, that's the play, ha- you, you have to shoot it. He did a really nice job of, of taking and making those shots in game two. So the other thing, strategic thing we should probably discuss is, do we think that the Thunder will go to Paul George defending Donovan Mitchell earlier in game three and going forward because it it wasn't until pretty late that they made that switch would granted Mitchell didn't play that well in the first three quarters I think they probably should but it has been noticeable that Joe Ingles basically being out of this series offensively has really changed Utah's offense it's made them a little bit more vanilla I, I love Ingles as a kind of a supporting player and Paul George can take guys out. And Donovan Mitchell, you know, you talked about Ricky Rubio going five for eight from three. If Rubio and Mitchell go a combined five for 15 from three in future games, that's not a big surprise. It's just the apportion because Mitchell was zero for seven on threes. And I think he 
was zero for nine on shots outside the paint overall. But yeah, going to your 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 main point, I think it's more important to take out Mitchell or minimize his his impact and let Ingles hit a few more shots and distribute a little bit more, just because Mitchell has proven to be the best engine that the Jazz have, and that's what led to one of my other ideas, which was the one of the ways that Oklahoma City could counter theoretically Paul George going on Donovan Mitchell, and this wouldn't necessarily take off that matchup, would be a little bit less Ricky Rubio. They could go in a couple different directions. The one that I would support is actually playing Jay Crowder at the three, so go Mitchell, Crowder, Ingles, Favors, Gobert, or, you know, you can, there are a couple other little wrinkles you can throw at it, because there traditional coaches, and I think Donovan largely aligns with this, would be reluctant to put their point guard on a guy who's small forward sized. And so maybe you can get them to break off that matchup, even though they should. Yeah, just engineer some weird matchups by going that direction. It's it's certainly worth a thought. Uh, yeah, to go back to the Rubio-Mitchell point, by the way, they had like completely opposite games. Uh, Mitchell, excellent in the paint, can't make an outside shot. Rubio shot 5 of 8 of 3 and 1 of 8 on two-point attempts in this game. Yeah, and I wonder where the Jazz, how the Jazz are going to treat Corey Brewer the rest of this series because he is really their fifth option offensively. And so how aggressively are they going to handle that? You know, let's say the favors, mellow minutes aren't going as well as the Jazz had them go in game two. I don't think in half court offense, Corey Brewer is going to be this dynamic off ball creator or anything like that. He'll hit some open threes if favors over helps, but the Jazz have the benefit of Rudy Gobert, and that takes away some of the pressure, desire to overhelp, which is plaguing a bunch of other teams in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, the Thunder offense, unless they have Abrinas out there with, you know, the four core players, it's going to offer hiding spots for Derek Favors one way or another. So your your number three series, and again, I agree with this, there are a couple different directions you could go with it, is Sixers Heat, another one-to-one series. And we're recording this before game three of that series happens. But I mean, the thoroughness with which Miami defended Philadelphia in game two was notable. And while, you know, their offense isn't necessarily going to play the way that it did in game two. I like that it provided kind of this idea of, okay, this is how Miami can make it a series. And yes, of course, that will change if and when Joel Embiid comes back. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the both teams got substantially worse shot attempts in game two. And Miami really had the weaker shot attempts when you look at the average value of them because of the fact that so much of their offense was coming through the mid-range and through Dwayne Wade in particular in the mid-range, a uh, recipe that was not uh, successful during the regular season but worked very well in this game in a game that largely reminded me of that that 2016 2016 series between the Heat and the Hornets in the first round. Yeah, that's an interesting an interesting point. And I'm having trouble figuring out like I, I think with this series more so than any of the other ones, I have a trouble figuring out like where the ebb and flow is going to be. I the general arc, I mean I picked Philly and seven at the beginning of the series. I could certainly see it going that direction. But in any given game, including the one that's gonna happen on Thursday night, I don't feel comfortable going, Oh, well this is this is going to be you know, okay, Miami's at home, they were on the road the first two games, this is going to be how it goes. And I think the same thing generally ties in with tactical adjustments in this series. Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, the Ursan Ilyasova at center lineups was kind of an unexpected development for me in game one, and it threw the, threw the entire series in a different light, I guess I would say, in terms of the floor spacing of 
Philadelphia now was able to create with Embiid out of there and just the different style of the game. And then it could lurch wildly in another dir- direction as soon as Embiid gets cleared. So, yeah, it's hard to see the uh, the through line to to the way this series is going to go. One big shift that happened, and I think it worked really well for Miami defensively, was Josh Richardson, I believe, is the Heat's best defensive player. But he's a little bit too small and not a perfect fit on Ben Simmons. And I was very impressed with the with what Justice Winslow did on Simmons. For, fortunate as they were that he could play fewer minutes and thus provide greater intensity. And if Richardson is off Simmons more of the time, that allows him to just wreak havoc on the rest of Philadelphia's offense. And I think that could be a big problem for them, at least until Embiid gets back, but probably even after that point. He was as good a, a perimeter shot blocker as we had in this le- in the league this season. So yeah, his his uh, size and shot blocking ability created some real issues from for Philadelphia. And you know, I think he was a big part of just both of those guys were a big part of just the the uh, physicality and then the ball pressure that Miami was able to provide that really did seem to throw the Philadelphia offense for a loop in that second quarter in particular. But then you look at it and then the Sixers, I mean, I don't know what the pace was in the second half specifically, but they scored 61 points after halftime. So they did seem to find a way to adjust to it. They did. And the Sixers have a series of different options they can go to. I mean, they have guys who are competent three-point shooters, not necessarily great at creating their own shots just off the dribble, but a lot of different ways they could go. I also thought it was weird to see Markel Fultz play as little time as he did. I understand that what Brett Brown is doing is he doesn't want Fultz and Simmons to play with each other given their relative limitations. And not only that, but just the ways they succeed is with the ball in their hands. But I feel like maybe you go maybe you go a little bit more to Fultz and Simmons, we haven't really seen scaling with him. Just, you know, rookie missed his whole first year with the foot issue. And a challenge with all of these players, especially early in their careers, is figuring out, okay, what is the value you added for them for minutes, let's say 35 through 40. And I think we're still evaluating. So I can't say Brett Brown is wrong to rely heavily on Ben Simmons. I'm not saying that at all, but we don't really know yet if he, like, let's say LeBron James can, if those minutes just reduce the effectiveness of him overall. You know, it, it didn't feel to me like they did in, in the fourth quarter of Game Two of this uh, this one. But yeah, I mean, it, it is still something we're kind of going through the learning curve with here. Once Embiid gets back, does Hassan Whiteside basically just go back to more of his normal role because he has a place to be? Or I mean, I think Kelly Olynyk has played very well in the series. Do you just say we'll try to make this work? I think that's going to depend on a few factors. I mean, first off is going to be Whiteside foul trouble. You know, he got into it even without Embiid on the court on, in Game Two, and that, you know, as much as the matchup difficulties was a reason he didn't see much playing time. And then, yeah, I think the other question is, do you want to try to combat Embiid's strengths or try to, you know, pull him out on the perimeter with Olenek and put him in unusual, you know, uh, atypical defensive situations? Uh, I think either of those can be effective strategies. And generally, you know, I think I like the Heat better with Olenek at center rather than Whiteside. I do too, especially because Whiteside, he can be a capable deterrent at the rim, but he's not as reliable as as the best guys. It's part of the reason why I never loved the defensive player of the year arguments with him. So the Sixers are running a lot, you know, towards the basket. They're doing all that kind of stuff. But with Embiid on the floor, he's, I, I think he's a little bit more enthusiastic of a three-point shooter than his performance this year has indicated, though you could argue that in the long game, if this was below his expected value, that it'll work out. And 
Whiteside just he makes them so much makes Miami so much more predictable and defensible offensively because if you give the ball to him on a post up you pretty much know what's going to happen and he's not doesn't have great vision to pass out of it and he sulks when he doesn't get the ball very often so it gives them a Miami more predictability on offense which I don't think helps them I'd rather and I'd rather see the offense go primarily through Goran Dragic oh, than, yeah. than Whiteside and I, I think part of the other reason why this series is so hard to get a read on is that a lot of the players in it are inconsistent. I mean, Simmons has played really, really well the last couple the last couple weeks slash months. Embiid when he's on the floor, but you know Wade can have clunkers. Simmons can have those as well. Goran Dragic has even had some weird ones too. So I mean, game one certainly was for him. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. There will be people who step up. There will be people who disappoint. But it's always hard. It's a, it's just hard to get a read on it. And I guess that's part of the reason I I'm enjoying this series. But at the same point, it's not. It's I like it when you can kind of get a sense of like, oh, look for this. And with this series, I just don't know what that is. It feels like there's lots of twists and turns ahead. And I I agree with you know what you said at the start that I think to introduce your pre-series pick that I think this is going to be a long series. Plenty more to talk about with Kevin Pelton. But first, a message from TrueCar. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It is enough to confuse anybody. All you are really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So, when you're ready to buy a new or a used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Let's go on to, I, I believe all the other five series are all 2-0, right? Yep. And I think because there's a good reason to. So there are really, to me, two series that you could argue are most competitive of those 2-0 series. And I would understand that the logic of going with Celtics Bucks as the more competitive of that is because most of us, I would say almost all of us, would say that given the injuries that Boston is dealing with, the Bucks are the more talented team in this series. Talent is, is a somewhat, it's not a valueless concept, but it is, you know, then that's part of the story of the series. But also because unlike Portland, New Orleans, the team that is trailing 2-0 in this series is going home. Exactly. And that makes a huge difference. You know, I mean, the, the percentages are actually very similar, but in terms of the importance of Game 3 in particular and just the, the direction the series can go, my main logic for putting Portland, New Orleans behind Boston, you know, Milwaukee, to just kind of get into that before we specifically discuss that series is, look, when the when the higher seed goes down 3 nothing and has to play Game 4 on the road, that can become a slog that can be a that can really get away from them. The series, in particular, I think of is the uh, the Toronto Washington series in what was that 2015 2014 where Kyle Lowry was banged up and they lost the first two at home and then lost I think game three and those three games were all pretty close similar to the first two games in Portland New Orleans but then after that they just clearly gave up the ghost in game four and got blown out. 
Yeah, I believe that was 2015, but I'm not I'm not rigid on it. But yeah, that I, I think that's a part of the logic as well. And and also, you know, the idea of kind of gravity in this series and going to Buck Celtics, I've been trying to think of the right analogy for this because one of the things Nate and I get a lot on Dunked On is the idea of, oh, if you just replaced X coach at this point, oh, all these problems are going to be solved. And the analogy that I I came up with today, and it's imperfect, but let's say you were living in Chicago and you were trying to go on a family trip and you just, and let's say it's a four member family and three of the people wanted to go to Disney World in Orlando. And then the other people, you know, the the other one person, but that's the controlling person, whatever gender they are, says, no, we're going to Disneyland in California. Well, the other three people might be mad about the decision. And let's say you're a day and a half into the trip and you, you're driving over there and you change their mind. Well, there's only so much you can do because you already went down the road that part. So you can either give up more time to turn your turn around and go the other direction, or you just have to make a new decision given the constraints that you already have. And that's where I feel the Bucks are this year. They just can't solve all of the problems they have, though I think they could do a whole hell of a lot better of a job of handling the parts of this that Prunty can do. It's interesting. I was talking to uh, a person in the NBA at the Nike Hoop Summit last week in Portland, and their their position was they fig- figured that you know, assuming there is a new coach next season for the Bucks, that a lot of these same problems that people have lamented this year were going to continue to plague them even with another coaching change because of the fact that they were more structural in terms of the roster and in particular their weakness at center than were really about the, the coaching maneuvers. That is both interesting and disconcerting, and I don't doubt it at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how strongly I feel about it, but I, th- I, I certainly see that path where, you know, there's, there's some time. I mean, it, it's sort of what we've seen with the coaching change from Kid to Prunty, and maybe again, it is because of the fact that it's too late, and you'd need a full training camp and a chance to really plot out these changes and not do them on the fly. But I think it's also possible that as much as they've tried to do things differently than Kid, Prunty, you know, in his coaching staff are still facing the same sort of limitations in terms of personnel that existed under Kid. And and you do see that in this series. I mean, that's why it was so fascinating to see them finally go to Giannis at center late in game one, uh, a lineup that yielded terrific results offensively and predictably poor defensive rebounding. And there are trade-offs involved in that. It's not like Milwaukee's a great defensive rebounding team anyway. So you can you can give them that sacrifice. And Tony Snow in particular, I, always, I don't know why I always focus on him being a bad defensive rebounder, but he is. And there's been some drama today with Javari Parker complaining about not playing enough minutes. And a good place for just for him to start is play better. I mean, if I watching him in game two, and I mean, he got blown by a bunch by Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in game one. What is the affirmative case for playing him more at this point? And you could say, oh, well, he's he's disheartened and that's maybe why he's not playing well. But coaches have to play the hand they're dealt. And maybe there were things that could have been done early in the season that would be better. That might have been part of the reason Jason Kidd was fired. But Jabari Parker has not deserved more minutes than he has received. Uh, Jabari Parker in this series has a minus 8.3 PER through two games. Whee! Oh, boy, that's that's very bad. 
Yeah, I, I think it's too late, and it seems like this situation is heading towards uh, Jabari Parker finding a new team this summer, whether it's via signing trade or just signing somewhere outright as a restricted free agent and the Bucks not matching. So, yeah, I think at this point you got to try and win the games, and you can't be worried about keeping Jabari Parker happy. And we've seen such good success this year with Giannis playing the four defensively. It's I just think he's better suited for it, and threes are more valuable than fours for a lot of reasons, one being positional skill. Scarcity, so it it would be a luxury for Milwaukee to be able to give Giannis that many minutes at power forward. But you know, Chris Middleton's had a really nice year. Tony Snell is more of a two than a three, but I think Middleton can do a good enough job there. And maybe if they if the Bucks concentrate their resources more, either through that possibility of a sign and trade with Jabari or just the mid level exception, they now have their draft pick for this year, something like that on on a three because this whole team makes a lot more sense that way. And it's like, one of those things that's just so hard with the Bucks is you see these flaws and you go, well, they should be better. And I, it's it's kind of the the other parallel to that is playing Tyler Zeller, who I just don't think is very good. But then you go, well, what could they be doing better? And you could say in the long term, oh, defensively switching more, not gambling as much, staying solid, all those sorts of things are there. But in terms of their rotation... Other than going small more often, which I fully believe they should do, I think that should be not a break glass in case of emergency. It should be closer to their default, especially because their centers aren't that good. But it's not like Thon Maker had such a good year that it's just an absolute travesty that he's not playing. He was pretty bad, and so that's why Zeller got the opportunity in the first place. And it's also not like they've got a bunch of great wings that you would put on the court if you did go small. I mean, that's been part of the issue in this series, too. Tony Snell has a 28.6 true shooting percentage. Eric Bledsoe, who inevitably is going to play extended minutes because he was great for them during the regular season, at least offensively, has a 40.6% true shooting percentage. Now, that's counteracted by the fact that Giannis and Chris Middleton and John Henson have been so efficient in this series so far, but... Part of what Milwaukee needs is their guys who are important just need to play better. And I think they will play better at home. I mean, I think this is the series that I consider most likely of the 2-0 series to go back to to Game 5 tied 2-2. One other adjustment that I would like to see Milwaukee make, and this, again, it's based partially on things that we can't see, but I thought Matthew Delvadova looked pretty good out there on the floor, and his willingness to just get into stuff I think could be very useful against Terry Rozier who has had a very nice series I think a lot of the Boston guys like that's the other takeaway for me so far is I said before that Boston has to look at this playoff run very very differently than they probably would have definitely than they would have in October but even very differently than they would have before Kyrie Irving's injury and it's more for signs of what these players can do moving forward. And I would say through two games, the returns on their young players and Al Horford, I think uh, Horford is a different case because he's so much more of a proving commodity, but Rozier, Brown, Tatum, I would say all of those guys have succeeded even beyond my expectations. Absolutely. And I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable for them offensively. Certainly, I don't think they're going to win a game where they give up, you know, 64% effective shooting, which was the uh, the best by a playoff loser in the basketball radi- reference database back to 1984 but uh so far so very very good from the celtics young players so you said that you think this is the most likely series to go back to two i would agree with that but is that what you see as the expected result or i'm thinking it'll be three one yeah i mean i think that's the three one is certainly the the most common result or in in the average result but i think two two is more likely than four zero 
Yeah, I mean, I could see the Bucks just totally losing steam if they lose game three. That's sort of a circumstance, not having the dead cat bounce of saying we want to move forward with it. But again, I, I don't know how to predict this Bucks team. I've been awful at it for a lot of this year, even though I think I did get their over-under right. Kudos to me, I guess. But let's move on to Portland, New Orleans. This was the series I had the most trouble predicting because I saw positive cases for both sides. And we've definitely seen the positive case for the New Orleans Pelicans. Drew Holiday has, to me, been the best player in the series. Both ends, domination, really good. I mean, defensively, game one was just an absolute masterpiece. Did a really nice job in game two as well. And then Anthony Davis has been very good as well. It's not it's not killing him to say that Drew Holiday's been better. It's just that Drew's been great and yep. tied in with Drew Holiday. I would say overall, both Lillard and CJ McCollum have performed below their expected level in the series. And it is yet another reminder, this has been true for Portland for the last two years in the playoffs. They depend so much on those two guys because they don't really have any other engines offensively. They have other guys who could take advantage of opportunities. Aminu had that big run in game two. Harkless played really, really well. But it really offensively for them does come go to Lillard and McCollum are going to take them as far as they can go. Well, Lillard and McCollum are certainly creating a lot of opportunities with the way New Orleans is defending them. And that's where I think that, you know, the two things that have happened in this series are number one, that even relative to the way they've been defended, Lillard and McCollum have been quite good enough offensively. And particularly in game two, it seemed like Lillard had some looks there and just didn't make them. They were they were maybe a little bit different than the looks he normally gets. There was like some 20-foot jumpers he rarely tends to take because usually he'll either drive all the way to the basket or shoot the pull-up three. But, you know, shots that certainly should be and, and typically are makeable for him and just didn't go down. And then the other element is just those other guys not doing well enough with the opportunities they had. But, you know, offensively, until the last couple of minutes, Portland got back on track in game two because of the fact that Aminu played so well, because of the fact that Harkless came in off the bench and went five for five this game was lost for them at the defensive end of the court with their inability to stop drew holiday and then just some terrific shot making by the pelicans perhaps no more so than nikola miritich throwing in a rainbow three-pointer to give the pelicans the lead for good after harkless had just made a three at the other end yeah and that was i believe after miritich it looked like he'd sprained his ankle and so I kind of sitting there like he wasn't moving well, and you're like, oh man, he's he's been such an important part in defensively, and then he hits that shot. And also, I think Miritich has been underappreciated in terms of the significance defensively because his primary assignment has been Yusuf Nurkic when Nurkic has been on the floor. And Miritich has done a good enough job that Anthony Davis can fulfill other responsibilities. And Davis is far better as a freelancer than Miritich is, so the Pelicans are getting some real benefits there. I, I think everyone assumes that Miritich is this poor defense because of you know the european bias sure. and and then what a good shooter he is but you know he's not afraid to mix it up defensively yeah and nurkic has done such a nice job over the course of this year something paralleling his former teammate nikola jokic of attacking mismatches mismatches and that can be getting into position that can be drawing fouls a lot of different elements but he hasn't done as much of that through two games of this series and that could end up it's never going to be the central point of portland's offense but going back to that game that they played against houston i think it was about two weeks before the end of the regular season might have been a little bit before that if they can get an extra you know six points on those sorts of mismatches force a switch just have nurkic back that guy down that can be a nice little a little basis for them to have this moving forward and I've also been surprised, though I understand elements of it, of why Connaughton has played a lot more than Shabazz Napier. Napier, his role is marginalized when you 
because he's more valuable on ball to me than off. And so Connaughton, you know, slides the other way and you want your best players to be ball dominant here. But I think the biggest benefit for the Blazers, assuming Harkless is ready to play not more minutes because he played plenty of minutes in game two, it seemed like he had a minutes limit around 20 and then he ended up playing 27. But shifting Harkless to the starting lineup and Evan Turner to the second unit, I think that balances Portland's strengths and weaknesses a lot better because Turner just wasn't providing much value in the starting five. I mean, you know, the Pelicans were happily helping off of him and he just couldn't make them pay. Missed all six of his shots in game two. The Blazers were minus 16 with him on the court and, you know, that reflected what it felt like with him out there that things just made more sense with Harkless on that weak side as the open shooter that, you know, is getting looks when uh, they have to uh, bring two to the ball and then a third defender over to deal with Nurkic as the role man. So, I mean, I think that will be one adjustment. We'll see whether Turner plays at all. He has the uh, toe contusion that has him his status uncertain for game four. And if he doesn't go, then certainly I think, you know, Connaughton ends up sliding more to the three than the two. And, and that probably opens up some minutes for Napier at point guard as a result of that. To go back to Nurkic, I mean, the fascinating thing is like he's got such a reputation as a bruiser and is willing to play that way. But then he, he's got this incredibly frustrating tendency to not finish strong, but instead try to finesse up a little floater or a hook around the basket, something like that. And I think this has been the case going back to since he came into the league in Denver, which is part of the reason he was an inefficient scorer during his time with the Nuggets. He's going to need to be more aggressive, you know, in this series when, when he is all alone around the basket because of the fact that, you know, New Orleans has sent both of the defenders in the pick and roll at Damian Lillard. So I guess the the next thing to to ask in this series is the same thing we just talked about with Buck Celtics, and that is after these two games in New Orleans, what do you think is the most likely series split? Yeah, I mean, I th- as we discussed earlier, I think if the Blazers go down 3-0, it's going to be very difficult for them to win. So the, the chance of a sweep is I think likely likelier here than it is with Milwaukee. I also think the chance that this, in some ways, the chance of the split might be higher because if the Blazers can get Game Three, then you know all of a sudden they're in reasonable shape. They're no longer in the terrible shape that they look like now. And the fact is, these these two games have been incredibly competitive. They've both been, you know, this ended up uh, what a nine point differential at the end of Game Two, but you know it was a it was a one point game with a minute and a half left when Drew Holiday hit the uh, pull up three pointer that you know real or two point game, I guess, at that point that that really put the Blazers in dire straits in this one. So they were right there. And I think you can argue that, you know, again, Portland was unfortunate in terms of its shot making in game one. New Orleans was fortunate in terms of its shot making in game two. And then if that ever evens out and the Blazers or the Blazers end up on the right side of the shot making distribution that they they can, you know, certainly win even on the road. I agree with your premise that both of those are more likely, but I still think that it's going to be 3-1. Yeah. <laughs> because this the, the nature of these two teams, I think they're very even. I also think home court matters less in this series than before. I mean, I they the role players, you know, that that's kind of the old the old chestnut is that role players play better at home. Well, both these series are very dependent on their stars. And so, I think those guys will be fine. 
They've been through, granted, Drew Holiday was hurt the last time the Pelicans went through it. They've been through the Crucible before. Both coaches have been through all this before. So I just think these teams are really close. Portland didn't get a few bounces, and New Orleans most certainly did. And, and New Orleans deserves an immense amount of credit for making the most of their opportunities. I mean, Drew Holiday's been superhuman so far. He's been one of the best players in the entire playoffs so far. Yep. And... All that, all that counts, and Davis could certainly be even better than he has been. But so can Portland. So yeah, I, I, my, my gut is that this is going to be three one. But the three different outcomes are all very surprisingly close in this. One. Before we move on, can I complain about one thing about the whole Drew Holiday two way player talk? You can complain about as many parts of it as you want. I hate the term. <laughs> Me too. I, as do I, because it's two words too many. Because when you say best two-way player, you should – what people actually mean is most complete two-way player, not best two-way player, because you're not counting them as equally important. You yeah, just because, figure out where players are. You know who the best, the best two-way guard is this year? James Harden. He's the MVP of exactly. the league. But – Here's the really annoying thing about the two-way player talk. Like, uh, Elvin Gentry keeps saying, like, you know, and I, I, I understand there's a lot, you know, I understand what's going on here, but he keeps talking about Holiday being one of the best player, two-way players in the league. He isn't the best two-way player on his own team. Like, Anthony Davis exists, people. Yeah, and Anthony Davis's defense this year has been underappreciated. And like not, not that Anthony Davis needs more compliments. He's doing fine in that regard. But that that's irking me lately. <laughs> I completely understand. I mean, and coaches have a very complicated job, especially in terms of their public communications. Right. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a little bit ridiculous. And I hate the term, just generally speaking. Also, it's one of it, it provides very little value and it is so frequently misused. So it's like it, it, it doesn't, you know, so what is your threshold? Because it certainly doesn't have to like, do you have to be an above average defensive above average on both ends of the floor? Do you have because it, it's just stupid. I hate it. I wish nobody used it. It doesn't it doesn't provide any value. It's probably not going away anytime soon. Oh hell no! It's not going. It's not going away at all. So I think there's a pretty big line of separation between those two series and the three that we have remaining, which we will not spend nearly as much time on. And the process here, in terms of figuring out competitiveness or however you want to see it, I think it kind of goes into a couple different boxes. And you can look at the quality of the top seed. You can look at the quality of the lower seed, and also how they have played. And I think this is what the kind of the frame that makes this so weird. To me, Minnesota is pretty clearly, in the abstract, the best of these three teams, meaning Washington, Minnesota, and San Antonio in their current iteration. Minnesota yeah, was- has not been the best of those three teams through two games. No. And that may say something about Houston. which sure. I mean, just if you knew that the, the Rockets were going to shoot as poorly from three as they have in the first two games, I think you would figure there's a pretty good chance the Timberwolves stole one of those two on the road. You certainly would not think that they were down 20 for basically the entirety of the fourth quarter in one of them, which which proved to be the case last night in game two. And that's discouraging because you have to assume that Houston is going to start shooting better at some point in this series. Yeah, I mean, the gravity of what Houston can do. I mean, they got 52 threes up in this game. And they didn't make nearly as many of them as they as they could have. Chris Paul and James Harden have not played. Not sorry, they haven't shot well in the same game. Uh, actually, I mean, I, I don't think Chris Paul played particularly well in Game One. And then, so you have that series. And Minnesota, they absolutely can win a game. Maybe, 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 maybe two in that series, but. I feel pretty confident they're not going to win it. You know, they're not going to win the series overall unless something drastic happens, like somebody gets hurt or anything like that. You know, there's the any chance rule, I think, still does apply to this series. I think it still applies to all these series, barely. But the most disheartening one for me has been Washington-Toronto because 
even though Toronto had this wonderful season beyond their history of never winning game one, you know, with Washington, you could see some some threads of, okay, you know, they got John Wall back. Sadoransky still had a wonderful season. They can make this work. They have better guard depth than before. They have enough forwards, you know, they could go in all these directions. And I mean, when you look up discouraging in an NBA dictionary, it's probably going to be the Bucks that come up, but Washington is a real close <laughs> second. <laughs> that's that's a good question yes, to ponder. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect you left out is just Washington's history of playing better in the playoffs than in the regular season. And so you figured if there's anyone you don't want to see if you're the Raptors in the first round, it's this Wizards team that is going to come swaggering in there. The only thing they need to qualify as the classic team that gives the, the Raptors trouble in the playoffs is Paul Pierce. So... For them to go down so meekly, and maybe it was just a case that Toronto needed to win a game one and get that whole weight and you know pressure lifted off their shoulders, and once they've done that, the Raptors will be fine going forward. Since I'm thinking about it right now, I'm going to ask you a totally unfair question. Okay. Who is the most likely team to win the Eastern Conference right now, 1.25 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday? Yeah, I'm going to go with Toronto at this point because... The reasons I was concerned about Toronto going into the playoffs haven't really shown up, and the reasons I was concerned about Cleveland going into the playoffs have shown up so far. And if you balance those out, I mean, Toronto was so, so much better during the regular season. I think at this point you should say the Raptors. And also the one big factor in that being there's a chance the Cavs don't get to that series in the next round. The chances of the Raptors not getting in there are in any chance territory. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair conclusion to make. It still makes me queasy <laughs> because right. betting against LeBron James. But I mean, Indiana, I, I mean, you pick, we both picked it as the most competitive series right now. Indiana's played really well, and there isn't anybody on the other side of the bracket that has really impressed. And whoever, theoretically, if any team steps up in that Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Miami mix, they could get an easier path to the conference finals than either Toronto or Cleveland. But nobody has. And my expectation is that nobody will, at least not until the end of the second round. Maybe maybe then whoever makes it out will look a lot better, but I think they'll just get steamrolled because the other two teams have higher ceilings. But yeah, I, I think that's a, a tough place to be. And Okay, so let's let's do this. Let's let's talk about these last three series in the same way that we just did before. Most likely outcome. Let's start with Washington Toronto. My instinct is that Washington pulls one of these two games, even though I've been discouraged by them. You know, especially just getting run off the floor in Game Two the way that they did. My instinct is that it's a it's a very it's a gentleman's sweep of sorts. But maybe the game that they win is Game Three. I think it probably has to be because you know you look at the Wizards, their chemistry issues all season long. This feels like a team that could come apart if they lose Game Three. And it would also totally fit in with the Wizards. I mean, because we get. Nate and I doing the Twitter and Bay show the way we have, we've gotten a lot of this, well, how do you break up the Wizards? And my answer is that you can't really. I mean, they don't have, but John Wall can't be traded until I think it's around September. Bradley Beal is, has been important for them. He's not irreplaceable, but very hard to replace given his talent level. Otto Porter's contract isn't too desirable. Their big men aren't on really favorable contracts. So what would be kind of the most Wizards solution here is they have this offseason where like they have this playoffs where it kind of breaks apart at the seams, but only moves on the margins happen. And that would be a little bit ridiculous, but also a very reasonable outcome here. Uh, I can't remember who tweeted it. I think it might've been Sirat that the the Wizards need a culture reset like the Raptors had last year. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they can hire Dwayne Casey. 
<laughs> that, that, that would be difficult. But yes, if they can if they can do something similar, that would be uh, very useful for them. Okay, so do you agree with do you agree with me then, that the, or do you think four zero is more likely than three one? I'll go three one by a hair. Okay. Do you feel more confident that Houston Minnesota will be three one, or do you think it's about it the same? I think I would say the most likely outcome in there is a sweep. Yeah, I'd say that's most likely. I could certainly see Minnesota taking one game, but I mean, Minnesota's offense in especially the second and third quarters, but it wasn't great in, in the first quarter anyway. In game two was just awful. Like they weren't getting much going on. They weren't exploiting what Houston, because Houston, their defense is so predictable. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's really worked for them this year that you're sitting there going, okay, well, this is what they're going to do before the series. You have a couple days of planning and you go, well, this is the best way to attack it. And Minnesota has just looked so lost despite that, that I've been very, very frustrated. Understandably so. I mean, it's there's not a lot to feel good about about the performance. I guess I guess Derrick Rose is game one is what you've got. Yeah, not him getting blocked three times in a row in game two. <laughs> no, no, def- definitely not that. Well, maybe you could get excited because maybe the Rockets were so excited by Gochi's performance that maybe they'll give him regular rotation minutes and maybe that'll be a, a way in for Minnesota. That would increase this ranking in the watchability rankings if Gochi were to become a regular. Yeah, that that's certainly true. And then... The last series we have to talk about, you had it last in competitiveness, and it it's going to change based on the the really sad news on Tuesday that, or sorry, on Wednesday that Aaron Popovich has passed away. And I mean, I think the on court dynamics of this series have been pretty have been pretty subtle. I thought San Antonio did a, a much better job in Game Two. They just got run off the floor in Game One. That was uh, shocking to see how badly they played. And I think Game Two was more reflective of it. But what has to be concerning for San Antonio is a lot of things went their way other than the three point shot, and yet they. You know, I would say overall, the you know, the Warriors aren't going to expect Draymond Green to get in foul trouble as early as he did, all those kind of things. And yet the Warriors still won the game eventually. No, maybe not comfortably, but they won it pretty convincingly. I, I think it was pretty comfortable. I don't think they they were working up a great sweat in terms of, you know, whether they're going to win the game in the fourth quarter. And, yeah, I mean, our... Our buddy Ethan Strauss and how awesome it is to hear him doing podcasts again and, and on Twitter. Uh, both of those places referred to the the uh, what was the chasm in uh, talent between these two teams. And I like the reply from someone that it was actually a Silicon Valley of talent difference between the two teams. And they're just whoever is coaching the team, who is now going to be Ettore Messina in Game Three, with Pop understandably taking uh, the game off after the tragic news about his wife, there's just not a good solution in terms of what you do with one of those spots on the court because either, you know, you got DeJounte Murray out there to provide the size and great defense he's he's offered this season, but then there's very little in the way of floor space, especially if he plays with Kyle Anderson, which, you know, he also who also didn't play very much in game three. Or you're going with lineups where you are very limited defensively on the perimeter with only Danny Green really as a capable perimeter defender. So something has got to give there at one of the two ends. Yeah, and I certainly I think with this series, we it's in any chance territory, but we, we know the outcome. I could certainly see it going five games, but be, it would be surprising to me if it went beyond that. Same here, yeah. And yeah, I mean... I feel like maybe the Spurs' best chance of pulling out one of these two games is a throwback Manu performance like we saw a couple times in the last week of the regular season. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I could I could see that. And Manu, this was a point that Mike Prada brought up during game one, that their best option to run the most basic action in modern NBA, a spread pick and roll, is a 40-year-old. And that is not exactly a great place to be. <laughs> oh, I mean, Patty Mills, he, he could do it. Yeah, the series, I, I mean, it, it, it has a feel of similar to that Houston Golden State first round a couple years ago, with the difference being that if the Spurs do manage to hit a game-winning shot to extend the series, I suspect their bench would be a little happier about it. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. So... Anything else you think, I mean, we, we talked about all these series, went through it, but are there any other kind of like broad scope things or anything you think that we missed that we should, that, that are a part of the conversation at this game two juncture? I think we've mostly covered it. I mean, the, you know, the other thing that's just hanging out there is when will players who are injured return? It sounds like Luke Bamute won't be out that much longer. And then, you know, Steph Curry, when that happens, but, uh, uh, other than MB, it doesn't sound like any of them will affect the first round at this point. Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, where we are at this moment. It can it can always change, but those will, you know, some dynamics will swing. I think Mbamute is extremely necessary for the Rockets in the series against the Warriors, but I think he could be important in the next round. And a point that I made in regards to the, the upset chances for the Rockets before the conference finals is that while whoever makes it out of the Jazz Thunder series is going, might be worse for wear physically just because those teams are, are so big and so strong and it's been that kind of series so far, they will have a ton of confidence and they will be, they will be playing a strong game because whoever wins that series is going to need that to get through it. Yeah, they're going to have beaten uh, a better team and just have been a better regular season team than whoever Golden State ends up facing on the other side. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yep, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time. You can, of course, read him at ESPN. You can also listen to the fabulous Pelton cast that he does, which I really enjoy. And you can follow him on Twitter, at kpelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. He is just such an amazing workhorse in terms of getting material, thoughtful, intelligent, worthwhile out during the playoffs. I try think of myself as somebody who produces a lot as well, but KP is at a whole different level, and I read everything he does for a good reason, because it is worth reading, and so I, I highly recommend you do the same. And this is going to be a fascinating week or so of NBA basketball. I mean, what happened after we recorded was, I think, the most notable outcome beyond Joel Embiid returning and, you know, having some really nice moments in Philadelphia's win was New Orleans just absolutely taking a a stranglehold on their series against the Portland Trailblazers. And so looking like we're going to get Warriors-Pelicans in the second round, pretty excited about that, but still plenty of time and space for all these series to move around. So I'm incredibly excited to see where the playoffs go the next little bit. It's a little bit of a stable time. Those of you who listen to the San Vicini podcast last week, this will be a little bit of a quieter time in terms of the draft. And I am thinking about the offseason already because I am already starting my offseason previews, which will come out this year at The Athletic. I am do I do all 30 teams in depth. The first ones that the first drafts of them are between 1,200 words and 1,500 words, which is probably going to be my standard for every team. So you can look forward to those coming in the weeks and eh, two months to come because I like to have them all out before everything gets real crazy before July 1st so people can process it. So those are in the works. Very excited about that. And then lots of other stuff, of course. Twitter NBA show going super strong this year. We're basically going every single day. The Warriors do not have a home game. And 
Love doing it so far. The feedback has been good. That's on Periscope. You can check that out. It's basically watching the games with Nate Duncan and me. Really do enjoy it. And then Dunked On five times a week, just like normal. My own work is wherever it shows up. Real GM is going to have some stuff. I'm actually working on, in my head, a series of pieces. I'm hoping to have two of them out next week, which will be, if I can actually pull it off, would be uh, something I've been asked to do a lot. And if I can get it done in written form, that would be fantastic. And then that also might end up being a Danny story time for Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan Great way to support the Twitter NBA show because we are not ad supported at this moment. So if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I might not respond. I have a lot of stuff to go through, but I do read it because it is very important to me. And if you like the show, awesome. Great to spread the word however you see fit. But a very important part of that is leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. But it's great if it's Apple because they're just so big in the business and just spreading the word, telling people, hey, if you're on social media, if you read it, whatever, whatever it is, hey, you should listen to either Real Jam Radio in general or this specific episode. Really do appreciate it. And then subscribing and downloading every episode. Real Jam Radio is different than a lot of shows that it does not have a specific release date because to get the right guests for me, you have to be flexible. And so with with KP, this one we wanted to do Thursday because that's when all the game twos had been done. And so some weeks it'll be then, some weeks it'll be other times. And if you want to hear me do something different, I had a really fun time. I was on Shaq's podcast, the big podcast with Shaq. And I did a, a playoff preview of sorts with him that I really enjoyed. And it was such a thrill for me to, to be on the air with him. And hopefully we get to do it again soon. That is a part of the Podcast One family. You can also check out the Attack Everyday podcast from the Harbaugh family. And the other big thing you can do to support this show and any others is check out our sponsors. Simple Contacts, really just amazing service to save a bunch of time and ideally save a bunch of money as well. Five minute eye test very, very cool. And you can go to simplecontacts.com slash real GM, or you can enter the real GM promo code. Both things, same discount, get you $30 off your contacts. So convenient. Five minute test. Don't have to go into a doctor's office, all that kind of stuff. Really, really awesome. And then true car, great place to buy new and new car, new and used cars. I can talk. You can check that out. So happy to have them as a sponsor as well. That is enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea, Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get Thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama.